Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's the Colorado Rocky Mountain High. I've seen it rain and fire in the sky. The shadow from the starlight is softer than a lullaby. Rocky Mountain On October 12, 1997, John Denver, one of the best-selling artists of the 1970s, whose music became synonymous with an appreciation for natural splendor and country backroads, boarded his home-built two-seater Rutan Long Easy airplane at a small airport near Pacific Grove, California. Flying was nothing new for the country legend. Denver had logged over 2,700 hours of flight time and had pilot ratings for single-engine, land, and seaplanes, as well as multi-engine and glider aircraft. He also had instrument ratings and even another rating to pilot his Learjet, which he'd purchased in 1974 to fly himself to concerts. And it wasn't even his only plane. Over the years, Denver spent a big chunk of his amassed fortune on vintage biplanes, two Cessna 210s, a Christian Eagle aerobatic plane, and most recently the Rutan Long EZ, which was an experimental aircraft he purchased from an amateur who'd built the aircraft from a kit. Although the term experimental aircraft may not inspire much confidence for people unfamiliar with flying, it's actually not all that uncommon in the world of airplane enthusiasts. This particular one had been built in 1987 and already logged around 900 hours of flight time, which is about average for a plane of that age. Denver had done his diligence on the craft, getting it checked out by two mechanics who both gave it a thumbs up before spending around $60,000 to purchase it from a man named Van Snow. Snow later recalled that Denver took a few lessons to figure out how to fly the new aircraft, executing a few landings to make sure he was comfortable operating it, before telling Snow, quote, I'm going to have a great Sunday. I'm going to play golf, and then I'm going to fly my new bird. And that's just what he did. Earlier in the day, Denver had played 18 holes with some friends at the Spyglass Hill Golf Course in Pebble Beach, before heading over to the Monterey Peninsula Airport. After practicing three more takeoffs and landings, he was given the all-clear to take his new toy out for a one-hour spin at around 5.12 p.m. Nothing seemed to miss, aside from a brief communication issue with Monterey Air Traffic Control at the beginning of the flight, who asked Denver to change his radar frequency. At around 5.28 p.m., Denver fiddled with the dials a bit and radioed back to the tower, quote, Do you have it now? They would be his last known words. Just moments later, a few dozen people soaking up the last bit of sunshine off the coast of Monterey Bay reported seeing the aircraft encounter some trouble. The engine was backfiring and the plane suddenly banked hard to the right, with the left wing pointing straight up. The move was so dramatic, some onlookers thought it might be a stunt pilot practicing a maneuver in midair. But the plane would never recover, crashing into the water with tremendous force. Jim Willoughby, a retired schoolteacher who lived nearby, said, quote, it sounded like a hundred tons of concrete dropped from the heavens. Within five minutes, the Pacific Grove Fire Department arrived at the scene to find debris scattered everywhere on the water. 
Denver's body was discovered shortly thereafter along the coastline, just a few miles from Carmel, where Denver had recently leased a home to be close to his eight-year-old daughter, Jessie, who returned that evening from Disneyland to learn the devastating news. John Denver was just 53 years old. I'm Derek Kaufman. I'm Jason Beckerman. And this is Last Days, John Denver. According to the Monterey County Medical Examiner, the official cause of death in Denver's autopsy was multiple blunt force trauma, which makes perfect sense given the nature of the crash over Monterey Bay. Tox results came back negative for all screened drugs and alcohol, meaning Denver was not under the effect of any substances at the time of the crash. This was important because Denver was known as a drinker. He had previously been arrested for drunk driving. In 1993, he pled guilty to a DUI charge and was placed on probation. In 1994, while still on probation, he was again charged with DUI after crashing his Porsche into a tree in Aspen. In 1996, the FAA determined that Denver was medically disqualified for operating an aircraft due to his failure to abstain from alcohol. One of his doctors reported that Denver, quote, in general, averages two to four drinks of either wine or beer each week when he's traveling. The report does note, however, that the letter from the FAA was returned unclaimed in December 1996, and a second letter was sent in March 1997, but the signature of the person who signed for it was illegible. It's possible John Denver didn't even know he'd been medically disqualified from flying at the time of his crash in October. And perhaps most ominously, Denver had been involved in a plane accident back in April 1989 while taxiing at Holbrook Municipal Airport in Arizona while stopping to refuel. Reports were that wind gusts caught the plane, spun it around, and extensively damaged the aircraft. Denver was not physically harmed during the incident. So given the results of the autopsy, however, the real mystery of what caused the fatal crash would be the subject of a much deeper investigation that took place over the next 16 months. Because as you laid out, Jason, some of the initial thinking about John Denver was, here's a guy who's had multiple DUIs, once crashed into a tree, or did, did some sort of inebriation play a role in this? It absolutely didn't. I mean, I, they I, found his body and he did not have any alcohol in his I system. distinctly remember his crash. I distinctly remember the news reports that came out later. And there was an assumption made that yes. he was probably drunk because he was known as somebody who, who drank. And he was known as the news reports started to come out. Everybody was making mention of the fact that he had these two DUIs recently. And the fact that there was likely a contributor to the accident, which at that point was unexplained. Yeah. And so that was sort of the working theory, at least publicly at the time. It really was. And that's what made the next 16 months really quite fascinating because the tox reports showed that wasn't the case. And then the National Transportation Safety Board finally releases its report on the tragic plane crash in January of 1999. And the findings were just shocking because what happened during this plane crash is now laid out in this report and it had nothing to do with any sort of intoxication. So first, there were no distress calls during the short flight. And as I mentioned, the last correspondence between John Denver and air traffic control was a completely ordinary transmission about finding the proper frequency on the radio for communication. And he sort of fiddled with the dial. He was able to find the right channel and he said, OK, you got it. And finally, he's in, in contact with air traffic control. And this really leads to only two possible conclusions, that what transpired on that flight was something very sudden that left no time for a distress call, or it was something that John Denver didn't consider an emergency situation that would even necessitate a distress call. One of those two things happened on that plane, because in any other circumstance, you would have a, a call to air traffic control. How can I address this situation that I'm in? Right. But that didn't happen. And it's not shocking that in the final descent, as he's careening towards the ocean, that he wouldn't 
be able to make a distress call at that point. It's not, I don't think we can read much into the fact that we didn't hear a final word sort of screaming in panic. Right. At that point, he's trying desperately to get the airplane under control, and that's not happening. So what we're talking about is before that uh, that, that final rapid descent. Yeah, and we have these eyewitness yeah. accounts of seeing the plane's left wing tipped right. up in the air. So what caused that to happen? Uh, the second major finding was that there was a maintenance technician who assisted Denver with removing the plane from the hangar and getting it ready for the flight that day who told officials that he and Denver discussed the inaccessibility of the cockpit fuel selector valve handle and the difficulty with turning it. And so we need to pause here to discuss the specifics of this aircraft a bit. The fuel selector valve was located behind the left shoulder of the pilot seat and needed to be turned to access the plane's secondary fuel tank, but it was difficult to reach. So the mechanic uh, attempted to use a pair of vice grip pliers as a makeshift means of extending the reach of that fuel selector handle but it didn't really work well to solve the issue. So this thing is behind Denver on his left shoulder. And Denver, according to this technician, told the guy, I'll simply use the autopilot function to hold the airplane level while I need to turn around to uh, manipulate the fuel selector valve. So that's a big finding. So this thing is behind him and he says, I'll just steady the plane on autopilot for a few moments, switch over to the other fuel, and then I'll come back to flying the plane. The third finding is that Denver refused the offer of fuel service. He told the technician he'd only be flying for it around an hour. And the technician said he told Denver the plane has less than half in the right tank and less than a quarter left in the left tank. And this same tech said that when he went to put away his tools, he heard the engine of the plane start on Denver's plane and then heard it stall out. He said he heard this. He walked out. He saw Denver turn in his seat toward that fuel selector valve, which he believes Denver pulled to change the fuel tank before restarting the engine. So we're already maybe in low fuel conditions between two tanks. Transferring over to the quarter tank. Right. With the fuel selector at that point. And it sort of stands the reason why we know what finally happened. Right? Yeah, it starts to all come together. So that's the last major finding is the crash investigators determined that here's what happened. He had to change the fuel tanks with that fuel selector valve while in flight by turning his body essentially 90 degrees. And that turning led to a natural tendency to extend his right foot against the right rudder pedal in order to support his body as he turned around. Sort of this move, Jason. And, yeah. and, and by doing it, he, he presses into the rudder pedal. That caused the plane to pitch up. The left wing went up into the air. It starts to yaw, which is consistent with what the eyewitness reports of what they saw that plane do in the air. And the report indicates that the plane had a very strong spiral mode is what it's called, which helps explain why people saw this plane pitch its left wing up and then go into a rapid nosedive and crash into the water. So the NTSB's final conclusion was that the probable cause of the accident was Denver's diversion of attention from the operation of the plane to swivel in a seat to manipulate the fuel selector valve, just as you said. In doing so, he inadvertently pressed down on the right rudder, resulting in a loss of control of the airplane. The board also concluded that Denver's inadequate pre-flight planning, specifically his failure to refuel the plane and lack of experience with the mechanics of the new experimental plane, contributed to the flight's demise. The report concluded with recommendations for one, more rigorous training standards for pilots operating home-built aircraft, and two, implementing mandatory ease of access standards for all onboard controls, including fuel selectors and gauges. Jason, and it's truly, it's truly yeah. a tragedy that happened in that flight. It's because so, so preventable, right? So uh, sudden, uh, so, so preventable. But it was he, he's he has self to blame, right? He should have taken the time to have those tanks refueled, and also he turned down. 
the potential sort of, you know, shoelaces and gum solution that the guy had with the, extending the, the grip vise to the fuel selector valve to extend it to make it easier for him. He didn't want to do those things. Guy had flown a lot, probably had a tremendous amount of confidence in his ability. Yeah, 2,700 hours in the air. So he said, I got this. Right. And it's not that it's not that it was an inherently dangerous situation, but whenever you take these little shortcuts, it increases, like in anything in life, it increases the likelihood something might go wrong. And I think the more you do something, like he had flown 2,700 hours, he had flown Learjets, he had a lot of ratings. That's why yeah. I was a, a, almost too, too good at flying yeah, for his own that's good. that's right. So he started to take these shortcuts, and it's a series of them in this one instance. Look, the fuel being low, he's just taking the bird up for you know yeah. an hour or two, but it was low in both tanks. So that meant it used enough fuel that he had to switch to the other tank, so he needed to manipulate that valve. Especially and, given that he already knew that the valve would be hard to manipulate, be hard to turn, you would think you'd load up those tanks so you don't even have to deal with it. Yeah, and, and you know, so the report shows had nothing to do with intoxication, just a tragic series of events that ended John Denver's life. Let's go ahead and take a break and more on John Denver's legacy when we come back. Are you ready to shop? Ragaton's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including Ray-Ban, Good American, and Ulta. Ragaton is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals. During Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th, the cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for apparel and electronics, and you can save on everything you need for the summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Just go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. Rakuten, R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. When you think of the 70s music scene, most people recall the decade for the decadent excesses of disco from the Bee Gees and Donna Summer, or maybe the flamboyant spectacles of rock bands like Queen and Led Zeppelin. But one of the defining musicians of the era was actually a melodic troubadour strumming an acoustic guitar and singing songs about the Rocky Mountains and sunshine on his shoulders making him happy. Born Henry John Deutschendorf Jr. in 1943, Denver changed his name early in his career after playing in local clubs and not being able to comfortably fit that long name on a marquee. He sang in a folk music group called the Alpine Trio while studying architecture at Texas Tech, but he dropped out in 1963 to pursue his music career full-time. And he quickly established himself as a songwriter in the late 60s. He penned Leaving on a Jet Plane. Everyone knows that song. It was a song that would become a smash number one hit when covered by the folk trio Peter, Paul, and Mary in 1969. I'm leaving on a jet plane. I don't know when I'll be back again. Oh, babe, I hate to go. And I didn't know this, Jason, but Denver's own version of the song peaked at number two in the UK in February 1970 after the Peter, Paul, and Mary hit. I didn't know that. I also didn't know you wrote the song in the first place. It's remarkable, right? Peter, Paul, and Mary were known as songwriters, and I'm shocked that they didn't pen that song. It's a John Denver song, and it was clear when his song went number two in the UK in February 1970 after them that he wasn't going to be content just being a behind-the-scenes songwriter, which he may have been very successful at in in its own right. Instead, John Denver quickly embarked on one of the most successful singer-songwriter careers of the 70s, and that's really saying something, because the 70s were the decade of singer-songwriters, with the likes of James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, Paul Simon, and Jackson Brown. You know, we don't think of him in those same categories, but John Denver's right up there with them. 
1971 album Poems, Prayers, and Promises is a classic of the genre and became a breakthrough for Denver, largely due to his first huge single, Take Me Home, Country Roads, which shot all the way to number two on the Billboard charts. These country roads take me home to the place. From there, Denver was off to the races, rattling off a string of number one hits in 1974 and 75 with Sunshine on My Shoulders, Thank God I'm a Country Boy, I'm Sorry, and Derek, I know your personal favorite, Annie's Song, a sweet ballad inspired by his first wife, Annie Martell, who he met at a concert in 1966, married a year later, and stayed with until the relationship came to an end in 1982, partly due to his career demands. You fill up my senses Like a night in a forest Like the mountains in springtime Like a walk in the rain With his blonde locks and granny-style glasses paired with the inspirational and maybe even a little mawkish lyrics of his songs, Denver's broad and inoffensive appeal turned out to be the best counter-programming for an era filled with the decadence of disco and glam rock. Denver was always a safe bet for conservative network ex- executives eager to have something palatable for their older viewers. You can understand that, right? There was a lot of drug, you know, not only use, but also uh, drug uh, content in songs. John Denver comes along and everything is very wholesome, very Americana, very outdoorsy and nature. Yeah, we don't need to whitewash it. It's why he's considered not that cool. Yeah. Because he came from an era when there was a lot of cool music, a lot of drugs, a lot of Rolling Stone profiles on these guys having, uh, you know, these decadent outings. And John Denver wasn't that. And for that reason, he became hugely successful. But he was also a great songwriter. But the, I think the biggest tribute to his success, as strange as it is, is not necessarily his songs, but the fact that his Rocky Mountain Christmas special drew in more than 60 million viewers staggering for ABC uh, one of the highest rated shows of all time you know if you take out Super Bowls 60 million viewers is among the most watched shows in television different time of television right very different time fewer channels but those numbers nevertheless put American Idol to shame oh things like that three times what American Idol was getting at its height or at least double I mean you're talking right up there with the mash finale that's the most watched non-Super Bowl ever and given that the population was what 50, 60 million fewer than it is today. But there were only three channels. Everybody watched them. And John Denver's Christmas special, Rocky Mountain Christmas, 60 million viewers. He even scored movie roles like the hit 1977 comedy, Oh God, which I watched often as a seven-year-old. It starred George Burns as the man upstairs opposite the mild-mannered Denver. For our younger listeners, think of it as sort of a 70s version of Bruce Almighty. Meet Jerry Landers, just an average guy, married, father of two. Every day he drives his late model car to Food World, where he is assistant manager, in line for a promotion. Bright, personable, competent, Jerry Landers has every reason to believe he's a young man with a future. And he is, but it isn't at Food World. Read this. God grants you an interview. It's a gag. Pretty crazy gag. Not, uh, not what you expected, huh? Warner Brothers presents John Denver and George Burns. 
in. Oh, God. Like many movies of the era, it feels a bit dated now, but it raked in $51 million on just a $2.1 million budget, serving as a proof of concept for just how popular Denver was at the time. Yeah, he was just incredibly bankable because he had a very iconic look, but it was inoffensive. Yep. And, and it sort of was appealing, but not too sexy. He was just right down the middle for, for, for Americans. But like any successful artist who specializes in broad-based appeal, John Denver certainly had his detractors. He was never really accepted by country music traditionalists, but his success made him an undeniable winner of awards and other honors in the 70s, including the award for Entertainer of the Year at the 1975 Country Music Association Awards. In an instantly infamous scene, Charlie Rich, the outgoing recipient of that award, grudgingly presented the award to Denver, but first set fire to the slip of paper containing the official results. A jerk. It is such a jerk move. You can watch it on YouTube. It's a very, very famous clip. People speculated at the time that Charlie Rich was protesting the selection of a non-traditional country artist, but Rich's own son later disputed that characterization, saying his father was just drunk as hell and trying to be funny. But yeah, it was well, a very hurtful thing. It was a hurtful and he was drunk. I mean, those, yeah. those things can be true, right? That's right. That's right. And still, people in the industry at the time considered Denver just a lightweight and too optimistic for a genre largely built around tales of woe and hard luck. I mean, this is the era of Waylon Jennings yep. and those yep. sort of outlaw country guys. And John Denver was not that. And then there was his politics. Uh, although situated somewhere between the conservative values of country music and the liberal values of folk music, Denver was an outspoken Democrat. And in country music scenes, that often didn't sit well. He campaigned for Jimmy Carter in the 70s and was highly critical of the Reagan administration and professed nonviolence and environmental awareness years before such views became more mainstream. In 1992, he even performed at a benefit concert to fight passage of an anti-LGBT ballot initiative in Colorado. When I saw that, Jason, I was I had to look at the year and take a second look. 1992, he was way ahead of the curve on LGBT issues and really outspoken in 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 favor. These of are days of these... don't ask, don't tell, and this was still a time when there was a general wide recognition that gay people, even among liberals. Yeah, we're free to do whatever they wanted, but they were different from straight people That's and they right. should be treated as such. And and John Denver, to yeah. his credit, was was far ahead of his time. And Jason, I want to give you a fun fact for everyone but John Denver. By the way, we have a podcast out about the We Are the World special, and I read this and was shocked to hear it. So John Denver actually asked to participate in the We Are the World charity song in 1985, but he was turned down because according to one of the song's producers, Ken Cragen, many felt his image would hurt the credibility of the song as a pop rock anthem. I mean, there's nothing more saccharine than We Are the World. And they said, not you, John Denver. But he's not we pop rock. To have cred. He's not pop rock. I mean, uh, he's I, not. I get it. It's not, it's not to say he's not great in his own right, but he would have been an awkward inclusion, right? He might have been. I mean, the people who were there, there's a pot shot taking at him when I think Paul Simon looked around the room and said, wow, everyone who's everyone is here. Oh. If this room were bombed, John Denver would make a comeback. <laughs> and it was just like everyone, he was the butt of all the jokes of the cool kids in the room. And I thought that was uh, sort of something that was pretty interesting about how he was perceived even in his own time. And perhaps less surprising, Denver was enthusiastic about aeronautics and space exploration. He even received a medal from NASA for exceptional public service for helping to create awareness for the space program. And he was a finalist for the first citizen's trip on the space shuttle in 1986, which ended up claiming the life of Krista McAuliffe in the Challenger disaster. So that was shocking to learn that he was in that contest as well and could have boarded the, the, the spacecraft in 1986 on that tragic journey. Denver was said to be heartbroken over the tragedy and dedicated his song Flying For Me to the Fallen Astronauts. 
But perhaps his most lasting legacy in the political sphere came in 1985 when Denver testified before the Senate Labor and Commerce Committee on the topic of censorship during a hearing on the Parents Music Resource Center. This was a huge deal at the time. Derek, I know we remember this well. Tipper Gore, who is the wife of then-Senator and later Vice President Al Gore, and a handful of others formed the committee with the goal of increasing parental controls over the access of children to music deemed to have violent, drug-related, or sexual themes. The PMRC went after artists like Prince, Motley Crue, Def Leppard, Black Sabbath, and even Cindy Lauper. If you didn't know, Shebop is about female masturbation. Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister and Frank Zappa gave memorably passionate testimony during the hearing, emphasizing the importance of free expression under the First Amendment. But it was John Denver's testimony, in which he defended free expression for musicians after his own song, Rocky Mountain High, had been misconstrued as a drug song that became the most indelible and lasting moment from the hearings. I'm here to address the issue of a possible rating system in the recording industry. Labeling records where excesses of explicit sex or graphic violence have occurred, and furthermore, references to drugs and alcohol or the occult are included in the lyrics. These hearings have been called to determine whether or not the government should intervene to enforce this practice. Mr. Chairman, this would approach censorship. May I be very clear that I am strongly opposed to censorship of any kind in our society or anywhere else in the world. The expectation was a bunch of long-haired rockers would speak out against the PMRC, and Tipper Gore stood ready to bat them away with testimony as the self-serving rantings of depraved individuals just looking to promote filth to America's youth. But when John Denver spoke up, the spectacle was exposed for what it was, a misguided effort at censorship that quickly fell out of favor in the years that followed. Yeah, this was a huge deal at the time, and his role in it, you know, Dee Snyder tied his hair back and tried to look as professional as possible, but he's the lead singer of Twisted these Sister. Were, these were it's all, obvious what All the other into. people who testified were sort of, whether they did drugs themselves or not, were looked at as the kind of people that promoted a partying, drug-addicted, alcohol-fueled lifestyle, and despite Denver's own problems with alcohol with the DUIs, he was viewed as very wholesome. Squeaky clean. Squeaky clean, conservative, the whole thing. And, and he so, was on their team, yeah. so it, it really blunted that that easy criticism Tipper Gore could have said, yeah, of course Twisted Sister wants right. to corrupt the youth. Right. Couldn't do that with John Denver. And the parental advisory sticker, you remember that? It was on so many albums from my youth. It actually backfired on the PMRC famously. It became a way of selling more albums as eager kids look for a way to buy the music with the raunchiest lyrics from bands like Two Live Crew and others. So John Denver's voice was an incredible instrument. It was sweetly melodic and soothing in a way that fit perfectly with all of his many hit songs. But it was his songwriting ability that stands out most to me. He was able to capture deceptively simple sentiments, the easy comfort of country roads, the soul-filling feeling of falling in love, and the uncomplicated joy of feeling sunshine on your shoulders. And perhaps most importantly, it was a talent that was recognized during his lifetime with induction into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1996, just a year before his death. And so I wanted to give the final word to Denver himself, who gave an interview after receiving the honor in which he talked about the power of songwriting and the incredible feeling of hearing people belt out their favorite songs from his catalog. It's an incredible thing to, uh, to write a song, to find, find something and be able to say it in a way that you know is going to communicate to people. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to do that if I didn't sing. I, I was asked earlier, and I can't separate the two myself. Uh, uh, Ten days ago, I had 70,000 Koreans singing Country Roads. How does that make you feel? Fantastic. I mean, there's just nothing like that. And then I tried to sing uh, Annie's song, which is another one very popular around the world. That's one I try to do in the language of whatever country I'm yeah. in. Yeah. And sometimes it works. <laughs> sometimes it doesn't. 